0: You can turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 17. We are continuing to travel with the Apostle Paul uh, as Luke accompanies him on his second missionary journey. Uh, We've been uh, walking through this since we read in chapter 16 of the movement into the, the European continent, into the region of Macedonia as they cross over into Philippi, and then they begin to move southwest. If you look at the map here, we'll see this second missionary journey. There we go. Far, and I know you probably can't read in the seats the names of the towns. Far eastern side, far right side of the map is Antioch and Syria. That's where they began, that's where they were sent out from. They cross west through that mainland, and then across the Aegean Sea into the far region of Macedonia, which becomes the first movement of the gospel into the European continent. The two cities toward the upper left, far left on that, are Thessalonica and Berea. And those are the two cities that we'll be reading about this morning in the beginning of Acts chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15, the entire passage here, as we sort of set the, uh, the background to all of this, Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them... All right, several points in this passage should sound familiar in terms of of Paul's sort of mode of operation when he goes into a city, carries it out completely here, a little different from what we saw last week in Philippi, where there did not seem to be a Jewish synagogue. Here there is. And so Paul arrives in the city, locates the local synagogue. Synagogue is is not just sort of the the building for worship. It is sort of the local community center for the Jewish population. It is a place that they meet during the course of the week, but in particular on the Sabbath. And Paul goes there on the Sabbath, and, and he brings the word of the Lord. He seeks an opportunity to take the Old Testament scriptures that they are studying and to show them that it has always been God's plan to send a savior. He describes them here as the Christ, the anointed one. And he's showing them from the Old Testament scriptures how, how God has always intended to send a savior who would come and rescue people from their sins. And then he explains that this savior is Jesus of Nazareth. He makes the connection for them that now in their lifetimes, this Messiah has come and it is Jesus. And this is God's plan. And so in these verses that we've read this morning, we see Paul doing this in two cities, Thessalonica and Berea, about 50 miles apart. Thessalonica, the larger of the two cities, population about 200,000 people. It is regarded in the Roman Empire as a a free city. And and essentially what that means is they have demonstrated such loyalty to the empire that they are given permission to to self-govern. They're still tied to the empire. Um, it's, It's still the capital city of that that region of the Roman Empire. So it's not like they're loosed from the Roman Empire, but they have their own currency and their own form of government in Thessalonica. Berea is is of less standing a significant city, but a smaller one. Um, And and in fact, historians question if that even was where Paul and Silas intended to go next because it was not necessarily on the major travel route, um, but but more than likely it was probably the out of the way place to to leave to uh, based on their departure from Thessalonica not being extremely friendly at that moment, and so Berea seems to be perhaps a plan B, obviously plan A in God's sovereign design. Both cities, the pattern's the same. Paul and Silas go to the synagogue, they preach, there is response. There are some Jews, and describes here, there are also Gentiles who come to faith. They turn from their sin. They embrace Jesus Christ as Messiah, and and almost immediately there is jealousy, and there is opposition that is stirred up, and and there is hatred against what Paul and Silas are preaching, and so they are forced to flee. So that's kind of the the summary of, of what we read. There's something, though, that's that's introduced here in the description of the ministry in Thessalonica as Luke tells us this, that we will see again and again in the rest of the book of Acts, which is Luke describing how Paul goes about ministering the word when he goes into the synagogues. Luke lets us in a little bit more on what Paul does. And there's also a point that we'll see from the time in Berea about how the people received the gospel. And and, and that's where I want us to focus this morning this is about how we handle God's word, how it is both proclaimed as Paul proclaims it to unbelievers. And and, and I just want to make this point and, and I'll make it again, no doubt, is that just because we're watching an apostle preaching doesn't mean there's not principles here for all of us as believers to learn in our proclamation of the gospel. This isn't Paul's particular style. This is scripture describing to us the conveying of the gospel, the communicating of the gospel. But there's also something about receiving it. The, the, the fundamental premise with which I approach this and with which I think all of you approach this is the Bible is, is no ordinary book. This is the word of God. This is not some mere ancient historical document. Um, th- this is God's Word. Uh, we could spend a whole Sunday just sort of um, building a, a, a bibliology, a doctrine of the Bible, which is what that is, just statements that, that, that say from Scripture what Scripture claims to be. But let me, let me give you three brief points just as sort of presuppositions as we approach this Both proclamation and receiving of the Word of God. And they would be this number one is the Bible is God's revelation of Himself, it is God giving to us what we could not otherwise have. We would not know God apart from his specific revelation of himself in scripture. And so Hebrews 1, one long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's talking now the old Testament, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. And that's what's now recorded in the new Testament. God has revealed himself to us in his word. And so we, we go to scripture to understand who God is and what he says, about us and what our, our condition is and what we need. And so um, God reveals himself in a, in, a, in a general way through creation, makes that clear in Psalm 19 and in Romans 1 that we look at the order in the universe and we know there's a creator, there's an intelligent designer behind it, but specifically and directly he reveals himself on the pages of scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is breathed out of by God it is again it is God's word second Peter 1 20 and 21 same point the Holy Spirit works through human authors so that what is given to us is truly the truth of God to man second point is this because it's God's revelation of himself it is therefore inherently authoritative Because we start in the beginning in Genesis with God creating the heavens and the earth. We start with the premise that this one who has revealed himself is the creator of all. Therefore, he is master of all. Uh, The the earth is is the Lord's and all that are in it, it belongs to him. Therefore, when he speaks, when he reveals himself, it comes with his authority. It it comes with the, the word of God. Thus saith the Lord. It is God speaking. And then the third thing, as a result of this, because it's God's authoritative word to man, then that means the Bible comes to us with immeasurable value. It, it is it is powerful. It is not just, again, an historical record. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 not only teach us that all Scripture is breathed out by God, but it goes on to say that that Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, may be made complete for every good work. And so Scripture doesn't merely tell us a story, but it is also meant to to change us, to to transform our being, and to make us complete, to teach us about God and his creation, to instruct us in his truth, to to comfort us, to convict us, to shape us, all about what the creator does, what the creator has provided, and what the creator demands of his creation. Just to emphasize that point, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living, And active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart." The the truth of that was evidenced for us this morning in baptism. It is that the the power of the Word of God that changes a heart, that that takes someone who is struggling with sin and anger and brings them as a believer in Jesus Christ, brings them to repentance and forgiveness, that's the Word of God. That's the, the, the immeasurable value of God's Word to transform, to speak to our behavior, our feelings, our thinking, our will. All right, these are all things we believe about God's Word. These 66 books that make up the Bible are indeed important historic literature, but they are much more than that. They have been preserved to a greater extent than any other comparable ancient document, but the Bible is not just some mere spiritual guidebook to be put on the category of your shelves of other spiritual books. It is proclaiming itself to be the truth of the word of God and it reveals God in an authoritative, life-changing way. People will dismiss it. They will try to dispute that. You can do so, but if you do, understand that you are you are running contrary to the very claims the book is making about itself. The Bible does not shy away from declaring that it is the word of God and it is convicting and it does bring judgment. And so if you are one who is in a position of, of doubting the word of God or, or sitting in judgment of portions of the word of God, then understand you are elevating yourself to that place of deciding what's truth, what, what's truth, what's not truth. And, and, and you are on incredibly shaky ground at, at that point because you are now putting yourself in a godlike position by ruling over the, the word of what the Bible declares to be the, the word of God. All right, here's, here's what I want to get to now. Acts 17. I, I think there are, are, are clear examples here for us who profess faith in Jesus Christ about how we should handle God's word, about how we should speak God's word, in particular in the context of evangelism, and how we should receive God's word. How Paul proclaims God's truth in Thessalonica and how the Bereans receive God's truth give us examples to learn from. These are not just history lessons. This is where the Word of God is living and active. And so what we're reading here is recounting a story, but it's also seeking to get to our hearts too and teach us how the gospel is being proclaimed and how it's being received. The the proclaiming part is in particular having to do with evangelism. I said it before, at at baptism, we are all called as believers in Jesus Christ to make disciples, to, to be engaged in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to family, to friends, to loved ones, to people that God puts in our life, to tell them about Jesus Christ. That's evangelism. And and we are all called to receive God's word. As believers in Jesus Christ, we're to be reading it, taking it in, hearing it proclaimed, meditating on it, studying it, seeking to know it better. No believer is excluded from the commands of proclaiming the gospel and receiving God's word as truth. That's why what I want to look at this morning is, Simple and straightforward, but of utmost importance to us because this is proclaiming of the gospel, this receiving of God's word is our responsibility. We are called to this. So let's be specific on the proclamation part. As believers in Jesus Christ, what's described here is that our evangelistic proclamation includes reasoning with explaining and proving. Point one, our our evangelistic proclamation includes reasoning with explaining and proving. And I'll explain those terms as we go through. But look again just at verse two a minute. Paul went in, as was his custom, three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ and the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. There's, there's Luke's summary of this proclamation, not only how Paul does it, but what Paul does. Some of you may have seen this past week, there was a, a whole internet debate raging about a young man from North Carolina who had just been elected to, to Congress who in the course of an interview was describing um, evangelism, was talking about proclaiming Jesus Christ and and his belief that believers in Jesus Christ are called to proclaim Jesus Christ, and that would include the ultimate purpose of glorifying God by seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ and, and include it in answer to the interviewer's question that, yes, that would include Jews and Muslims and any others who need to know Jesus Christ as Savior and not shockingly, in, in our day and age, this became an outrage. It, apparently, there are people on Twitter who are not aware that, that Christians believe that we are to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that it is a responsibility that we are called to and There was all sorts of mocking and, and criticism, and that 's precisely the kind of cultural reaction and intolerance that that threatens to keep us from sharing the gospel. When we see that sort of outrage the 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 easy reaction at that point is to sort of hunker down just a little bit more and pull back from our culture just a little bit. But it's, it's remarkably hypocritical that the message of the culture is, how dare you proclaim Jesus Christ as Savior and try to convert people? That is intolerant. Therefore, we are going to tell you that you cannot do that. Somehow that's not intolerant. That's the the depiction of tolerance, to tell Christians not to do that. It's utter hypocrisy and it's deception that is rooted in Satan. We are called to love people enough to tell them that there is a Savior, and that is what Paul is doing. We should not be afraid. And so what can we learn about this? If we're honest, over the course of, of even American history, evangelism has had its peaks and valleys. There have been moments where you look back at America's history, the Christian church in America's history, and evangelism ha- has not always been great. There have been many seasons when evangelism has focused in on sort of emotionalism and decisionism, sort of moving people emotionally, getting them to decide something. You go back to the 1800s, early 1900s, and the revival preachers in the tents who are who are preaching, the, as we describe it, hellfire and brimstone, in some sense to sort of move people emotionally, to, to sort of move them toward Christ out of of some level of fear. Hell should be something that we include. It should not be the dominant thing of what we include in our gospel, but the fact that God judges sin should be there. The, the, The reality, though, is the pendulum sort of swung for the Christian church, and too often gospel proclamation nowadays has gone more to, God loves you. You're special, and you can have a great life if you believe in Jesus. If you are unhappy, if you are unfulfilled, Jesus has come to make you happy and fulfilled. You just need to accept Jesus as Savior. And and, and in doing that, we've sort of swung the other way, and we've, we've sort of disregarded the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the judgment of God, and his wrath being poured out on his son, Jesus Christ, for our sin. What Paul does here is he helps us to think about evangelism a little bit more clearly. It says he reasoned with them in verse 2. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. Word for reasoned. our English word dialogue comes from the Greek word that Luke used here. A dialogue is sort of a conversation, a back and forth, intelligent discourse. Something that is... Is sorely lacking in our culture nowadays. We all just want to speak at and not not listen. Dialogue is actually intelligent conversing and, and listening and responding to another person's concerns and, and, and providing reasons for what you believe, and there is a willingness to go back and forth. It's thoughtful. It's not pure emotionalism. It's not manipulation. It's not simply saying that there's, there's some enticement here and, and, and just holding out a reward. Rather, Paul is reasoning with them. But the, the key in verse 2 is he's reasoning with them from scriptures. The, the authority behind all that Paul says is the word of God. That is the, the life-giving power. He is speaking God's truth. That's the place from which we reason. Paul, we know from his own sort of autobiography in in Philippians and elsewhere in Scripture, is a skilled, trained theologian. He understands the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures, and yet he is clear over and over again. It is not his sort of rhetorical eloquence that he relies on. It's the Word of God. It's speaking God's truth and trusting that to have its effect on people's lives. Our presupposition in, in, in proclaiming the gospel must be that the gospel is God's word. We have it here. It's described to us. Jesus Christ came as a man, lived a perfect life, suffered and died for sin, rose again, turned to him, believe in him. We, we have the clear gospel. And, and, and it is that which people need to hear in order to be saved. We we sort of sometimes the the Christian community or something, what if what if they don't believe the Bible is God's word what if they don't put authority in God's word can we use evidence you know point to nature point to history point to proofs about the resurrection and and secular writers and and sure all of that is helpful as a starting point to a conversation all of that can supplement a conversation but in the end no one is a neutral observer of of, of truth or what puts itself forward as truth. No one is neutral. The unbeliever is not neutral, just needing to be persuaded by the right evidence and, and, and gladly accepting that which seems to be more true than the rest. We all have biases, and the unbeliever has a nature that is dead in sin. And so creation, Romans 1 says, gives irrefutable evidence of the existence of God, and yet what does it say man does? He suppresses the truth. He says, no, nah, that, that, that there's something else behind it. There, there's some other sort of, Magical thing that happened that caused everything to come out of nothing, but it, it can't be God because, because he's not neutral. Because that's, that, that's his judgment that he makes from his own grid. That's why in the end, we can't cause people to believe in Jesus on the basis of our own logic. It is God's word that we must proclaim. That the truth of who he is and what he has done and how Jesus Christ has come and, and offers salvation. And so that's why Paul says he reasons from the scriptures, and then it says explaining, verse 3, and proving. The word for explaining is opening. It it, it is to to unfold. It is to begin to explain that. You don't need, this doesn't mean you need to have a Bible college degree, a seminary degree, a certificate in biblical studies. You don't need to be a theologian. You, You must read the Bible and be able to share the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we are called to as believers, of what it is that we believe fundamentally about Jesus and man and sin and salvation. We should be able to take people to the scripture and show them that. And Paul does that. And in fact, it says in verse 3, the necessity, the, the must that he explains to them. So here's, if we're going to boil it down, what, what must be communicated, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and Jesus is that Christ. There's the musts. If it's necessary, that means we're also then somehow dealing with God with, with man's sin because the necessity comes from the fact that we are sinners in need of a savior. And it is that necessity to communicate that the Messiah did not simply come to, Politically save people or to save people from bad feelings, he came to save us from sins. And so he had to die for that. He had to sacrifice himself for our sins. And so he opens, he he explains, sheds light on, helps that which is difficult to see, difficult to comprehend, to become more comprehensible. That's, That's what we're doing in evangelism when it says explaining Doesn't mean he's necessarily going through a a five-point outline with sub-points and telling them the meaning of the Greek word or anything like that. It means he is simply opening to them the gospel. He's able to go, obviously, he doesn't have John 3.16 at this point, but you and I are able to go to John 3.16 and explain how it is that God loved the world, that he sent his son, and why we needed that to happen. Why Jesus had to die for our sins and rise again. And so he is opening the scriptures to them. He says that's the heart of the message. That that's what the Christ does. And then in fact, he makes that connection there in in verse 3. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. This is God's plan that his Savior had to die. There has to be a sacrifice for sin. And he says he must rise. If he simply died, it would be maybe an example of, of sort of, giving oneself for another, but it would not defeat sin. The purpose of the resurrection is to show that sin has been defeated. Sin and death have been defeated. That's our hope, that that this is not all there is because Christ has risen. We who are trusting in him will rise. We have life because Jesus defeated death and sin. And so he is stressing that this is what Jesus did. Same message Peter preaches back in Acts 4, in Acts four twelve, when he says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's important that we, we take them back to Jesus. He is the one, he is the savior. He's the one who died and rose again. That's the message. Take the authoritative, powerful word of God, open it up and explain. Man's greatest need is, is not a cure for COVID. It's not a more perfect government. It's not to feel better about himself. It, it, it's not to, ever, to, to never be treated unfairly again. Man's greatest need is salvation from his sin. It is rescue from the, the judgment that he deserves for his sin. And, and we desperately need that. And that's what we need to proclaim the authoritative word of God, explaining and reasoning. Look down now at verse 10, and and let's move to reception of the word. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Our proclamation includes reasoning with Explaining and proving our receiving of God's word should be with eagerness and daily examination. We receive with eagerness and and daily examination. Let me be clear about something right up front. When we're looking at the Bereans in verses 10 and 11, we are actually talking about unbelievers in this context. That's Luke's point here, is that the gospel is being preached. These are receiving it, differently than the Thessalonians there's a a, an an even greater hunger and reception of it and I I just want to be accurate in the context so when I suggest to you that we as believers should also be eager and daily examining the word I'm I'm taking that as application from this and, and also from other scriptures I think the paradigm is here that this is what God desires in our reception of the word this is this is what God commends as a person's receiving of God's word Verse 11 says the audience was more noble than those in Thessalonica because of how they received the word for noble um, literally meant a family of high standing, but but actually sort of came to mean over time sort of... Um, People who had um, sort of better mores in terms of approaching the, the Word of God and, and approaching learning, and they were more receptive to teaching and, and, and to taking things in and to being open-minded about stuff and teachable in spirit. They were likely to be more curious and inquisitive. So that's when Luke says the Bereans were, were more noble than the Thessalonians. He's saying they, they just seemed to have a, a greater sense of openness to wanting to learn and hear about God. Um, But the the reason that they're more noble is explained in verse 11. It wasn't just that they were sort of, and our culture would would say, oh, they were just tolerant. They took in all sorts of points of view. No, because verse 11 says they were more noble because they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They they took the word of God for what it is. They began to listen to it as authoritative. They, They even had a healthy skepticism. At Paul's preaching that caused them to listen to him, but to not determine whether or not he was right or wrong until they had searched the scriptures, until they had seen it in scripture and, 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 and confirmed it there. So when it says, first, they received with eagerness, that's a picture of a heart that has been warmed to the word. Um, in James one twenty one, right, right before it says to be doers of the word and not hearers only, James wrote, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with, with meekness, receive with humility the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. James one twenty one is a verse that gives me confidence that we can take Acts seventeen and eleven and apply it to believers, because James is writing to believers. He's not saying this you need this in order to be saved. He's he's speaking to believers because he says this is this gospel is already implanted in you. It's already taken root, but the, the salvation is a, we are saved at, at, at the moment of conversion, but the fullness of our salvation is not until the day we stand before God in glory. We continue to grow like Christ and we are being set apart like Christ and we will one day stand in Christ's presence. And that's, what, that's what James is talking about there, that, that it is able to bring you to the, the climax of your salvation, which is standing before God complete in heaven. But his point there is, Embrace the word, receive the word, take the word eagerly. God's word is the powerful saving revelation. And as believers, we should be hungry for God's word. You should, in looking at the Berean, should be asking yourself, "Am am I eagerly receiving God's word? Do I make time to intake God's word, do I read it? Do I listen to it? Do I meditate on it? Do I, do I think about how it applies to me? Do I, I search scripture with the goal of, of it getting into my heart and, and changing me? This isn't, a, this isn't about quantity and how much of God's word you read. It's about rather consistently being in God's word and having it come in and, and change you. Do you believe God's word is like bread that that we are hungry and starving without it and we need it? Do you believe that the word of God is like, the the words of Jesus Christ are like living water that we thirst for? Our our souls become parched by the evil around us and and the the responsibilities of daily life and all the stuff that just sort of occupies our minds And, and the word of God is to be like that living water that satisfies us. Peter says craving the the pure milk of the the word, like like a newborn, just having that level of desire for it. It, it, if, If you struggle at all in that area, Psalm 119, just read through that this week. The psalmist is just on and on, dozens of ways to make the point that blessing is found in meditating on God's word. We must be in it. We must read it. Those, he says, who keep his testimonies are blessed. Those who fix their eyes on his commandments are not put to shame. He says, give me life according to your word. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. And on and on through Psalm 119. Teach me, Lord. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life in your ways. Verses like these should resonate in our soul that we understand what the psalmist is saying. I, I need to read and meditate on God's word. If they don't, it's okay. Pick up where the psalmist does. Cry out to God and say, God, help me grow my appetite for your word. Help me to long for your word and to understand its importance Pray, that's what he wants us to do as children. He wants us to humbly come to him and say, I am struggling in in, in time in your word and and I I just need help that I would just take in your word and, and embrace your word. Help me in that. The Bereans, it says, examine the scriptures daily. So they're listening to Paul's arguments and reasoning, and they're not taking his word for it. Instead, they are, they are heading out when Paul is done, and they are taking the scrolls of the Old Testament, and they are enrolling them, and they're saying, is this really true? Is this the suffering servant he talks about? Is is this clear in Scripture? And they are checking to see if the prophets actually foretold a Savior like this and if Jesus could be that Savior. They are testing his word, and God commends them for being careful. They checked to see if what was preached was actually the truth of God's word. Don't embrace things just because some TV preacher says it, just because someone who sold a lot of books says it, just because someone who has a a church of thousands says it, just because I say it. Don't take it on that basis. Take it because God's Word says it. Check it. Uh, The late James Boyce, who pastored for many years, said, good preachers want a congregation that hears the Word, receives it eagerly, and then goes to the Scriptures daily to see if what is being taught is really true. We live in a day when information is coming at us at unbelievable levels, the amount of, the quantity of information that, that comes our way. Um, I am no computer expert, and those of you who've tried to walk me through various processes on a computer can verify that, but a byte is 256 characters. Experts say that humans produce 2.0 five quintillion bytes of data every day. That's 25 with 17 zeros after it, for for those like me who need to to sort of picture how huge that is. That's that's the flow of stuff that's coming to our phones and our computers and our TV screens and our podcasts and our radios and just on, 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 this, this flow of information. And no small part of that information is in some way speaking about the nature of man, man who man is and what man does and how man thinks. There's no small part of that information that is impinging on, on your view of man and on your view of, of God and how you think about your day and the world. And at any given moment, you will encounter ideas and, and pithy phrases and, and hear perspectives about man's potential or man's So-called goodness, or man's needs, or man's sexuality, or his well-being, or his relationships, or his purpose. All of that comes at us in a myriad of ways, and we are called to filter it, to put it through the grid of Scripture. Our culture speaks to us about the, the creation and nature and order and design and whether there's a God and if there is a God, what does that God stand for? And what does that God tolerate? What is this God like? And in and, and, and all of that, the Bereans teach us we have a responsibility that we would go back to the word of God and say, is this right? Is this how man is described? Is this man's need? Is, is this what salvation looks like? We are responsible to to run the stuff we hear about God and man and creation and salvation through the lens of the word of God and see if this is really the path of wisdom for we as believers. What's your authority? If if someone says to you, yes, I I do this and, and I know the Bible says it's in the Bible's 2,000 years old. It wasn't written for today. It's, it's a different time. It's different morals. It, it, it's, it's a living document, right? It should transform with the times. What do you do with that? When they say, ah, you know, I know what the Bible says, but culturally, isn't this okay? How do I test that? What will be your authority in those moments? What are you going to rely on? sit in judgment and say, yeah, I'm going I'm to overrule scripture on this one. I'm going to hope that some of the other stuff that I like is true, but this part I'm going to overrule. What is the authority in that moment? Will you embrace God's word or will you rely on your own intellect and interpretation? Because at the end of the day, our culture does not hesitate to tell us in no uncertain terms that the Bible is at best a set of old, pronouncements and metaphors, that's subject to all sorts of interpretations, so you can't really rely on it. And at worst, society will tell us that the Bible is an irrelevant, outdated, sexist collection of fairy tales, and and you are an intolerant bigot if you believe in it because it can't possibly be true because there's this and there's this and, and you can't sort that out and it doesn't have any authority to speak to modern day morality. As believers in Jesus Christ, we should expect such foolishness. The Bible actually tells us that this sort of foolishness is what we should expect. That's why Romans 1 says that unbelievers declare the truth about God to be what? A lie. They, they look at God's word and they don't want it. And they don't want to live in, in, in submission to the authority of the God who loves them and who made them. And so they say, no, nah, that's not true. That can't possibly be true. And they exchange the truth of God for a lie so that they can satisfy the cravings of their own heart and and fulfill their own lusts. That's why as students of God's word, we are called to be like Bereans. We don't take everything we hear in the culture about man and God and salvation and creation at face value. We examine it through scripture and say, are there biblical principles that guide me? Before you embrace whatever the latest cultural fad is, before you embrace even whatever the latest evangelical talking point is, before you, you make that post about some kind of evangelical issue, about some kind of world issue, pause for a moment. Is this consistent with Scripture? Is, is this what God's Word says? Just because somebody with a, a, a name says it, I mean, you still shouldn't stop and go, is this what God's word says? Because we're in this immediate gratification culture now where social media tempts us to make snap judgments about crucial issues that, that at, at points are life and death issues, and we're called to make these judgments based largely on the feel-good test. It sounds good. It feels right. God is love. This has love somewhere in it. It must be right, and therefore I, I, I'll go along with it. Maybe right may not be. Am I, am I spending time in Scripture and actually seeking wisdom to think about it and try to discern what Scripture says because it requires care and commitment? Acts 17 tells us many believed in Berea. In fact, I'm going to end here. If you go back to the, the Thessalonians, that, that charge that the opponents of Paul and Silas make, these men, verse 6, who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And these opponents now of of Paul and Silas are saying, these guys who are in this town, they are creating an uproar. They are turning things upside down. And what they're doing is, they're turning people away from the Caesar, and they're claiming that they have this king named Jesus. And we need to get rid of these people. These guys aren't conforming, and they're radical, and we don't like it. Folks, may that be our prayer that God would cause us to so eagerly receive his word and proclaim his truth that our loyalty to King Jesus would be so obvious that people would say, he, he thinks Jesus is king. He, he, he's willing to put Jesus over anything. That's what we are called to, is living a life that, that demonstrates that. May the world know that Jesus is our king even when that makes us repugnant to the world even when they disagree with us, and even when they, at least in this sense here, want to chase us out of the proverbial village, may God grant us the grace and the power to believe this, to hold this as authority, and to proclaim it to the degree that it would turn our worlds upside down. Let's pray. We come before you, Father, as people who have meditated on your word. I, I pray, just in, in terms of what we've talked about, that whatever I've said that is consistent with your word, you would cause to have its effect and, 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 and cause to bear fruit. Lord, if there's anything that I've said that is Um, straying from your word that is not helpful or edifying to your people. I pray that you would just erase that, that that you would cause that not to be a a stumbling point for anyone listening. Father, help us as your people to love your word, to seek to want to proclaim it, to believe that there's life in it, and to receive it with great eagerness. Lord, um, we, we pray that we would be a people that would by our lives, demonstrate the kingship of Jesus. That because we hold to this book, because we live out what we see in it, and we repent of our sin, and we embrace the the grace uh, of the work of Jesus Christ, um, that even where that brings offense, causes people to perhaps move away from us, uh, that we would not move away from you or your word but that we would cling fast. Help us to be faithful students who examine your word, who look at our own hearts, who when we hear ideas, when we're challenged about our beliefs, are willing to to take the time to dig back in scripture and to speak from out of its truth. Father, I pray for anyone listening this morning who is not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, that and you would bring them to that place this morning of seeing what, what Paul said, that the Savior must, the Christ must die and rise again. That's what sinners need is a perfect, faithful, sacrificial servant who gives his life as a ransom for sinners. Thank you that Jesus died and rose again. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are that Savior. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.